Software engineering was not Steve Kinney's initial path as he majored in sociology in college and worked as a New York City public school teacher as his first post-college job. Today, Steve is principal engineer at SendGrid, an email marketing startup in Denver, Colorado. The Accidental Engineer focuses on the backstories behind professional engineers in tech. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Steve. Welcome all, uh, The Accidental Engineer. Uh, we have an uh, awesome guest joining us today, Steve Kinney. Uh, Steve's a uh, senior front-end engineer with SendGrid in Denver, Colorado. Um, and like many of our guests, Steve has an accidental engineer type of background. Uh, Steve, do you mind sharing uh, your path from maybe high school through to becoming a valid engineering uh, professional today? I'll let you know when I arrive at a valid engineering professional, but uh, I'll, uh, it started, uh, I think my mother sent me to a uh, how, to, uh, how to make a web page uh, summer camp uh, when I was in middle school. I think it was like 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned HTML. And that was cool. Uh, made a, like a GeoCities page of uh, Mortal Kombat cheat codes, or I guess they weren't cheat codes. They were like whatever the like the given moves that have you like freeze somebody or like whatever. Um, and so I made one of those pages, and I wish it's lost the time, but I know that it wasn't very good. I uh, I recently <laughs> like looked up the kind of other other websites of that era, and it definitely like fit in the general um, the general like level of quality that you're used to seeing there but uh you know lots of uh animated gifs um music that started without your your permission uh it probably took a good like two minutes to load it was effectively like a modern web app in a lot of ways <laughs> had, it, had um, an 8-bit music and geocities exactly. theme Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that, and I remember I bought a book on JavaScript at 14 uh, from Barnes & Noble. Uh, I don't think I ever read that book or even opened it, but I definitely like bought it. Right? So I knew <laughs> some HTML at like 10 or whatever. I learned CSS when I was in charge of uh, updating the New Jersey Folk Festival's website in Dreamweaver. Uh, <laughs> wow, that, that takes CSS me back. That I, mm-hmm. Um, so I did that. So I learned CSS at like 21. Uh, so it was like, I was kind of like in an every like seven to 10 year cadence, um, built that. And then I didn't actually learn how to program until I was about 28. Uh, you know, I became a New York city public school teacher when I graduated college because I was a liberal arts major and that's what you did. And both my parents were teachers. So it seemed like the kind of like obvious thing to do. And I remember at the time, uh, the city, it was like kind of no child left behind. And the city of New York was very into like collecting data on a student performance. When I started, that was basically you would take all these post-it notes on like how a student was reading and you'd put the post-it notes in a binder, which is really, I guess, fine for data collection as long as you never plan on like processing that data in any way. Uh, And like this school was like very proud that when the auditors came in, they took all of the binders and like stacked them on this table. Um, And they got a got a great review. 
view, but like that was like the kind of like, and this was, would have been like 2006. Um, that was kind of the like state of data collection. A little later on, um, the city of New York paid some large company some obscene amount of money to build like a, a data warehouse. And it would have stuff like uh, the most recent, like, or last year's state test, um, the scores from the practice version of the next year's state test, the simulated version of the state test, um, the mock version of the state test, along with like whatever grades they had for every marking period. And they were all available in CSVs. Um, and what you would do is they would have a bunch of teachers like work after hours and you would take these CSVs, which are all, each one had like a student ID on it, and you would like cut and paste different columns uh, into one master spreadsheet to figure out like what students were at risk of um, not meeting their adequate yearly progress goals and yada, yada, yada. So you could figure out um, which kids you were going to take out of gym and art for extra tutoring. Um, oh <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I can imagine how A, demoralizing that would be and B, yeah. there's got to be a better way. Yeah. So I like I, you know, I, I again, I, I was armed with a little bit of uh, CSS knowledge and the ability to tweak a WordPress theme. And this whole app was like a giant Drupal app. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know how to program, but I had been around computers long enough to understand that there was such a thing as a relational database uh, where you could like join a bunch of data on stuff like a student ID and like come up with different um you know, different like views of that data. And I knew that I was effectively at this moment, a human relational database. Um, <laughs> and that I probably wasn't nearly as efficient as, as you know, a computer relational database would be at these kinds of things. So I, um, I, I basically said that I, that I was going to build a application that was going to do all this for everyone so that we didn't have to do it anymore. I also, I and I didn't necessarily, have, like it was one of those things, I didn't have the ability at the time, but like I knew that things like Ruby on Rails uh, existed. And I knew, like I'd seen that like video where DHH makes a, like a blog in 10 minutes, right? Uh, and there was a little bit of a difference in DHH's skill level at that time in my own. Um, but I knew that this was like, you know, kind of like not necessarily like, in my wheelhouse, but not like, so terrible that I, you know, not so far out that I could never do it. Um, so I basically like announced that I was going to build this thing and <laughs> built it over the summer. Right. Um, my wife was taking like a yoga teacher training and that was like all weekend, every weekend. So I had a, like a lot of like time and I just sat there and like built this thing. And like, it was, I wish I could find the code somewhere because it was it was terrible. Um, it like we we talk about like a lot in like web performance today about like you want like two seconds for time to interactive. This like these like an n plus one query would have been generous. Uh, these were like n so times five. Someone would click a button, <laughs> potentially be yeah. waiting thirty plus seconds. Well, there's a lot of things that would be happening. They'd be definitely waiting like at least 30 seconds. Um, also, I would be sitting there with like tailing the Heroku logs and like basically like human operated error handling. 
um, and like continually like changing the code as like people were using it and they were oh there's a 500 error because like there's no method on nil nil class and I did dark things in there like if you tried to call a method on nil instead of blowing up it would just like return nil again it was, there was, it, was it was probably one of the world's worst uh, web applications but like while it was somewhat fragile and slow it was definitely a lot faster than doing this stuff by hand right oh, um, yeah going from uh, that was I, Going from only having HTML and CSS skills in hand to feeling perhaps overly confident enough that you'd be able to do this. I think a lot of people out there may not just know that that's possible to do. Yeah, um, yeah. What, I, I think mean, you need to be faced with the alternative of having to do everything by hand. Right? Yeah, <laughs> when yeah. that's the alternative, like you get you get kind of uh, you get creative in that sense, right? Oh, certainly, certainly. So. At what point did you decide that public school teaching was not for you or that uh, the next step would be to to move out from New York to Denver and uh, yeah. become an educator of software engineering? So the, the accidents continued. Um, so this thing, you know, it shifts. We're, we're using it and stuff along those lines. Um, and uh, around that time, this would have been 2012, um, I remember my son was born and all those things. And like, as the next school year started, um, Hurricane Sandy came in. I lived uh, in Rockaway Beach, Queens at the time, and a block and a half from the ocean. And Hurricane Sandy came in and just like wiped out like everything in the on the entire peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, the school was like closed. Uh, my my home I like was a seven minute walk from work was like destroyed, and we ended up uh, moving to a moving to Jersey City Heights, um, which is on top of, like Heights is the key word there. It was on top of the Palisades, um, very high up and far away from the water. Um, but you know, as the school got like rebuilt and stuff like that, I ended up having a two and a half hour commute each way. It involved two boats to get to work. Um, <laughs> One of those boats had Wi-Fi, so that was good. Um, <laughs> but it involved, yeah, two, a, a bus and two boats to get to work. Um, so that kind of like added a little shock to the to the system. And so I started uh, like kind of you know looking for uh, jobs kind of like in Manhattan, which was like kind of centrally located. Um, and like I was applying to some schools there, and like I like at that point I was like teaching programming too, like and like the amount of programming you need to know to teach it to seventh graders of how to do their very first thing is not you don't need to be necessarily like a, a senior engineer to teach enough for beginners, right? I think like uh, you know it's 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 nice to assume that like everyone probably knows a little bit less than you, uh, especially like middle schoolers. especially seventh graders, I, yeah. Yeah, so I was like running over the summer. I ran like a little like uh, boot camp for for like seventh to eleventh graders, and I was kind of teaching those things and like managing all the technology in the school, uh, which was really a lot of fun. But my license was elementary uh, special ed, and I was teaching middle to high school uh, programming and technology. And I, I I like teaching special ed, but I don't like teaching elementary school students. Um, so having weaseled myself into that job, I didn't want to go back to teaching like first grade. Uh, I'm, I'm not set up for that. Um, and I don't want to take kids to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> so how does the curriculum change from teaching 10, 11 year olds to teaching full grown adults who are interested and desperate to get skills to, that will get them employment? 
Uh, surprisingly little like I mean there's like more of it right like uh, but teaching is one of those universal things so yeah I was applying for a job I got a job uh, at the Council for Economic Education and I was the director of educational technology or whatever that means it's like it's the director seems really fancy until you realize that there's only like 13 people that work there like I was directing nobody um and there were two directors of educational technology. And um, at the time, they like they their big thing at the time was they took all this, uh, they took good money and they would make these um, textbooks full of lesson plans for on economics or personal finance and teachers or would like take these lesson plans and like they would go and teach them. So super cool. Um, they um, they I think like pitched like some companies on like having these like interactive activities that went along with each one these like interactive data visualizations that students could uh, collaborate on and they raised some money and this is all before I started working there mm-hmm. and um, you know like they so they raised this money and it wasn't like a ton right uh, and then like my job was to like go ahead and find a, like a consultancy that could build this and then kind of project manage. Uh, turns out we didn't have like nearly enough budget to like meet our commitment, and I don't really know what it was at the time, but somehow I felt personally like this was my uh, cross to bear. Um, so we had enough budget to build like seven out of the twenty. Um, so I had to build like the other thirteen, and they were really cool. They were like some of them used like web sockets, and students could like make trades like from iPad to iPad, and like the teacher could have a view that showed like the health of the market. Uh, other ones were just like these, you know, like these crazy like interactive visualizations where like students could drag stuff around, see like different things change, uh, and they were really cool. And I remember like at that point I knew some jQuery, I knew some Ruby and some Rails. Um, but like I knew that wasn't gonna cut it for all of this stuff, so I remember I put on Twitter, uh, "Should I learn Ember or Angular?" And the only person that responded to me was Yehuda Katz, one of the creators of Ember, who said, "Ember, but I'm biased." Um, <laughs> so I ended up, I ended up programming all day, every day. Um, that predominantly, like that was what I did. Was I wrote, you know, for like a year, I just worked on like getting these things out the door. Uh, on time, I had to like come up with what the activities would be. Like, so I had to read the draft of the book, like, and I would design them all in Sketch, and then I would sit there and like write them all in Ember, um, and then like push them up to production. And like, they still exist today. Uh, so I was doing that, um, and like effectively at that point, like programming like full time. And um, one of uh, one of my friends, uh, Ashley Williams, used to be a New York City teacher as well. And she was working for a consultancy. She was like she had made the transition to being a developer, but she was putting together this uh, collection of people in tech who had education experience. Um, so she made this like GitHub group and there was like some issues, like, you know, issues by issues. I mean, like discussion, right? Like you make a GitHub issues about a topic mm-hmm. and then people could talk about it. And um, that kind of put me in touch with Jeff Casimir, who actually like he made like one of those code school videos um, on jQuery. And uh, so he's like kind of a hero of mine because he was a DC teacher uh, for Teach for America and then like made this like jQuery video that I watched that like switched me from like writing Ruby to being all about JavaScript and all about front end. Um, But he had like kind of like. Yeah, I think he admits to like reading half a book on uh, jQuery and then going there and doing the course. Um, <laughs> so he's in New York. I said, "Hey, do you want to grab a drink or something?" He's like, "I'm flying out in the morning. Do you want to do a um, Do you want to do a uh, Google Hangout?" 
and like that's not really the same thing as uh, as getting a drink. But sure, uh, you know, like I don't really know what to do in this situation, so I prepare for it like as a podcast interview. I have a bunch of questions and topics, and I'm asking him all these questions and talking to him. And then on minute 27 of the 30 minute call, he's like, "So I guess the next step is for you to fly out to Denver and see if this is a good fit." Wow. He was sitting on the floor. <laughs> this is yeah, sitting on the floor of terrain. Yeah, he was sitting on the floor of terrain at that point because there was no um, there was no. Uh, furniture yet because I hadn't really started yet and I had literally been driving back from the beach with my wife saying like you know if, if I had a dream job it would like this guy Jeff just started this Turing thing I'd like to work there that was totally like a separate thing like, I was like wh- whoever thought that was going to happen and one week later uh, we're talking about flying out to Denver to see if it was a good fit uh, so I flew out um, and he offered me a job and so I broke my lease quit my job and moved two-thirds of the way across the country um, just as uh, Turing was starting up. That's madness. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things that comes from this story most recently that you were just telling is how you can read a half a book about jQuery mm-hmm. and be a really good educator on the topic. And it's yeah. not, I mean, it's part and kudos to jQuery for being a great and well-designed piece of technology. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. one of the realities of educating for programming and engineering is how the more recent you've gone through the content, the more recent you've dealt with the pains yourself, <laughs> the better you are yep. qualified to mm-hmm. teach it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things with teaching. I think the beginner mindset is like crucial, like to like think about this and try to understand it in the way that like a beginner would. Um, because if you know too much, if you know too much of the inner workings, like that like clouds your vision. And I think the other thing is like I learned, I mean, even when I was working at middle school, I was like teaching this stuff as I was learning it. And I think that like the level at which you need to understand something in order to be able to teach it, like, uh, again, like to quote my friend Ashley, I think one of her quotes is like teaching like helps you understand how sloppy your understand or helps you learn how sloppy your understanding it actually is. Because um, it's one thing to like know how to use the asset pipeline in Rails. And it's another thing to be able to talk for three hours about how the asset pipeline works to a room full of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so you end up with this like much deeper knowledge of like everything that you work with than um, when you just like work with it to like fill your needs. Oh, certainly. <laughs> yeah. So one of the topics that I think would be great to talk about um, is around the topic of boot camps and educating people uh, mm-hmm. about software engineering. Uh, this isn't so recent. This was maybe a month or two ago, but two higher profile development education uh, programs went out of business or were shut down by their their ownership. So there was Dev Bootcamp, mm-hmm. which had been acquired by Kaplan, with a very large uh, test prep business, um, and mm-hmm. Iron Yard, which had been bought by Apollo Group, which is a large investment company that manages a lot of for-profit colleges. So maybe, maybe yeah. these aren't representative of the greater market where uh, people haven't <laughs> sold out to very large companies that don't have a direct interest in, in maintaining a, a pretty manual business. Um, but do you mind speaking to uh, where you see the, the marketplace for credentials from uh, mm-hmm. boot camps in software? Um, yeah, being someone that has worked at one, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Turing is Turing is a was an is and was um, a nonprofit, right? So it's like a very different like business model. Like we were a bootstrapped nonprofit. So not only were we not uh, theoretically like set on like a 10x return on investment, like we also we were still at the same point bootstrapped. I think it's hard because I I don't I think over the decades there have been all of these like. Um, uh, education, like, like in the same way, there's an iPhone killer every year. There's always like a traditional educational model, like, um, killer. And don't get me wrong, there, having been in the business for like a decade, there are a lot of problems with the educational model as it is. But like, if you like remove remove the bureaucracy part and you boil it down to the like, um, you know community of learners and maybe the idea of an instructor, like this idea of like in-person stuff along those lines, like all attempts to like disrupt that have, have don't end well. I think there was this whole thing where like VCR was going to kill the traditional classroom. And then I think Apple had some kind of lab in the eighties and that was going to like replace teachers. And then what was it like 10 years ago, we had the massively open online courses and that was going to like destroy like, and like none of them have ever like done it. Right. (laughs) And I think every year you see someone who's trying to like optimize teaching and make it like scalable. And like, I think in my opinion, like, good education unfortunately does not scale right it involves like if, if it is like the kind of instructor and student model it is an instructor who has like learned about where the students are coming from is reading their faces constantly as they're like explaining material and making these like a uh, thousand micro optimizations to like how they're explaining something like as they're doing it it's like the one of the reason i'm always like so exhausted after i'm done teaching mm-hmm. it's like because you're just reading 25 faces like constantly the entire time and i think a lot of that like there's no way like you know like jacking up class sizes is one way to like get more value out of a single teacher but we know that doesn't work mm-hmm. um and i don't know if it's like possible like can can an educational institution like um, like that aims to be like a nonprofit and just pay the bills every month. Can that like thrive, right? Yeah. But like, are you ever going to return like a 10 X return to your investors? Like, I'm not, <laughs> not sure. Like all attempts have failed. I have never seen it work. Uh, I think that education is just really hard. Like it's really taxing and it doesn't scale very well and that's okay. Right. Um, that's not a condemnation of anything. That's just, I think, part of the reality of like the practice. There's like, yeah, there's a, like a lot of things along those lines. Like they just, you can't, you can't ramp them up past a certain point without like diminishing returns on, on quality. And so, like, it's one of those things. I don't think it's like like because some of the larger ones that you know had these these separate like they did, you know, at a certain point like. For Kaplan and Apollo, there's like like those those are businesses that have to make like good decisions for their shareholders and stuff like that. And it's not like I don't think it is the fact that like either one of those programs were bad, right? Uh, I think they were in a really tough position, um, and I don't think that means like teaching is broken or that teaching people how to write code is broken. I just think that like it doesn't scale super well, right? Oh, um, agreed. I mean, when a lot of the area of innovation, quote unquote, in uh, boot camps has been around financing. So I remember seeing startups that were started not to educate people, but to provide financing to educate people. And there were mm-hmm. all these hijinks to figure out how do, how do we make it possible for people to borrow money so they can afford to pay tuition to be able to attend Dev Boot Camp, Iron Yard, both these programs that are no longer existent. Uh, yeah. I, there's a lot of innovation at this point 
in in newer boot camps that are not owned by Kaplan or uh, or Apollo that yeah. focus on offsetting the costs of the education till you have mm-hmm. a job. So yep. um, I, I can't name them by names, but I'll include links to them in the the yep. details or the notes yeah. about our conversation. There are, there are some, there are, so yeah, there are some that I think are zero cost or something like that. Turing's always played a bunch of, like, I think really interesting games with that, which is, like, at the beginning, we, we kind of, like, self-financed uh, students, which was, like, it was, like, whatever, like, a few thousand dollars to get started, and then we didn't, um, we didn't ask for the rest until you had a job, and then you paid it over, like, three years or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then, like, we had things like a tuition, like, guarantee, which is if you didn't get a job in three months, then either if you pay it up front, here's your money back, or if you didn't pay up front, like, clearly you don't owe us any money. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, you know, that became, comes weird, too, because, like, apparently, like, uh, the state of Colorado didn't know how to regulate it, so told us we had to stop doing it. Um, I'm like, okay, um, but like, yeah, yeah well, and that's you know, obviously for a like bootstrapped nonprofit, like we did it as much as possible, but that also means like, how do you make payroll for the first three years, right? Like, and all that stuff is kind of, kind of difficult without like some money in the bank. Yeah, that's another large area of innovation in this space is yeah, uh, not touring, but. I know that uh, there was a, a point a year or two ago where uh, state or federal United States regulators uh, kind of uh, uh, gave a warning to a lot of different schools that um, are not accredited really by a third party. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, Apollo, who acquired Iron Yard, is famous for owning a bunch of for-profit colleges that uh, basically skimmed money off of the tax advantaged student loans that they would they would uh, funnel their students into borrowing uh, which are backed by the US government <laughs> so it's a it's a increasingly regulated business as yeah. uh, as these companies in the the, the dev boot camp space try to figure out yep. how can we how can we finance our paying our teachers um, when our students don't don't have the jobs to be able to pay for yep. the high tuition numbers that that we need to yeah. charge. A turn we got we got on the up and up with uh, DPAS, which I believe is the Department of Private Occupational Schools. Uh, don't quote me on that. Sure. Uh, so we got accredited <laughs> there, and that but that is still a state accreditation, right? Uh, and I think two years in, we got approved to take the GI Bill. Um, and that was kind of cool, but like, like the next, I think step for them is like, you know, it just takes a really long time to get like federal accreditation. It's just not something like, oh, it's never occurred to some of these programs. It just takes a really long time. And like, once that happens, you can take stuff like federal loans, right? Student loans and stuff along those lines. And I would say like, as, as the industry like matures a little bit and some, some programs are just around long enough to like be able to hit these like milestones. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see like when, when traditional funding options even become an option, mm-hmm. um, see how that changes things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I know a lot of our audience is curious about is the job placement aspect of mm-hmm. boot camps. And as an educator in the Turing program, you may not have had as much involvement with trying to uh, directly help your your students be placed into jobs, but 
Uh, that's one service offering that a lot of boot camps advertise. So do you mind sharing for our audience uh, what what boot camps are capable of doing on behalf of their students? Uh, what kind of yeah. outcomes uh, a, a student might get from attending a boot camp versus trying to find a job independently? Yeah, I think like that was one of the struggles for me, like other than some like lucky breaks where I ended up like programming in jobs that weren't like when I got hired for that job as director of educational technology, that was not a programming job. I ended up having to program all the time. Right. Um, But yeah, for like students who graduate these programs, um, some of them, I think, have like relationships with companies, but I think that's not particularly common. A lot of them are like, we will help you. And that's, um, I think it's just a more common model. Like the things that we've seen are there are companies that go like, I would, we don't hire bootcamp graduates. Cool. Um, <laughs> there's also, but what we've noticed that if we can like get one in there, we can like sneak one in, right? Um, then they're like, this person is the best. How many more do you have? <laughs> right. So this is um, really hard signaling problem to get over is people, yep. I think a lot of employers might be paranoid about um, deterring more experienced candidates from joining their team if they Mm-hmm. Uh, become aware or see that the team is composed of very recent bootcamp grads. I, th- I think that's that might be part of what employers are worried about, and is yeah. is the hurdle that um, people from bootcamps are tra- are facing when they go to apply for jobs. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where like um, I think something super interesting, and I do want to like round back to like networks and stuff along those lines, which I know that. Uh, some of my friends who work at the Node Foundation, they're looking to like put together like a like certification exam. And like I think some of the stuff while like the educator in me who has not nice things to say about state tests, um, <laughs> there's a part of me that likes it as like a, a like a cool hack. Right. To like get people who don't have like like a computer science degree doesn't always necessarily make you a a web developer, right? Like those are like there there is overlap. They involve programming, but the, the you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's not, it's a nice to have. And I don't, but I don't always think that it is like absolutely essential. I mean, I don't have a computer science degree, so bias is out on the table. Um, <laughs> but like a lot of people, yeah. I have friends that work at yeah, I have friends that work at Google, and I have you know uh, Microsoft, and like you know the kind of name brand companies who don't have these degrees, right? Like. Uh, they have music degrees and stuff along those lines. And I think, you know, like there, there's more to programming than algorithms. And alg- like I am, I love algorithms, right? But like I think that like when you're designing user interfaces, like ha- like there's some huge advantages to a liberal arts background mm-hmm. in those cases. Um, so I think with like a lot of the schools, like once they have like a critical mass of alumni that work at a company, and especially if it is a school that is good at what they do and brings in great humans, um, then you end up, you know, this is a situation where, like they get one in there and now they want, they want more, right? They want more of these people. Cause I think that there is a little bit of like a self-selection of the person who's kind of, um, kind of crazy enough to like, uh, <laughs> spend seven months, uh, doing this giant life change. I think like there's a, there's a, like a, a commonality there that makes for some like really like great, uh, humans to come out of it. Right. And so you have this network effect. I think a lot of times now you're seeing an interesting shift where the first dev camp started in, I think what, 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. um, hungry Academy, which is the, um, like the pre version of terrain, 
uh, that was at like a kind of inside of living social at the time started in 2012. Um, I think what's now starter league, I think that's the name. It was called something else back then. Um, but that is like starting about 2012. And so you have, but what you mean is that what, what that means is like the graduates from the, from the first year, first years of those programs are now five years out into the field six years next year out in the field like they're in the position where they are like senior engineers uh managers right some of them have founded their own companies at this point and so i think you will you will see the like stigma um begin to like lift over time in those cases as it's like a as what we're now calling an unconventional background becomes like a very like conventional way that people got into the industry i think there's this really great um, probably made up statistic um, that says that at any given point in our industry, and this is true for like the last 20 years, over 50% of all developers are junior developers because right? we're just growing so fast. Oh, yeah, dude, um, I believe it. <laughs> right? And like, you know, this is, you know, what's unconventional today is there are, there are a number of these programs, you know, like they are a lot more successful. Like we, we can talk about some that have like, funding problems with the business model at scale but generally speaking and there are obviously we can we all cite some like terrible like ones out of like someone's basement but like the the ones that we can name are generally speaking like not fly-by-night operations right and are employing smart people who are good at what they do um and like bringing in like students who are smart people who are passionate right and like that's usually a formula like if you're playing the long game um that works out really well so i think the networking stuff when when one person gets hired is important i think you see the graduates from the early classes are now in positions to be decision makers inside of companies and don't have those same biases right like Mm -hmm. That like a bunch of, you know, when you had a company that's 100% computer science majors, it, it is not surprising to see people be somewhat skeptical of someone that didn't come from the same background, mm-hmm. right? And that's like a larger problem in tech that doesn't just like isolate itself to uh, programming boot camps, right? Like, and yeah. it's a bigger fish that we need to fry as an industry. Um, but this is like one aspect of that. So this is a, I think this will be our last topic, but being uh uh, having a background as a public school teacher, uh, joining Turing and teaching uh, boot camp students, uh, and now you're still instructing for front end masters, doing workshops online, um, choosing what curriculum to teach, or as a student, what curriculum to seek out. Uh, yeah. How, what do you think are good criteria for someone coming from an unconventional background who's maybe never touched HTML? or CSS or, or let alone JavaScript and whatnot. What, yeah, this what is a what's really, the order <laughs> to learn things? This is a, this is a really good question that I've struggled with. and I don't have a good answer for So we're just going to watch me try to figure it out with words <laughs> live, live on, uh, on, on Skype. Well, how, um, how, how have you, what are, what are great success stories you've seen, uh, of people uh, going yeah. from zero to 60? Um, well, let's round back just to give the context of, of like this answer, which is uh, when I when I started working at Turing, it was a Ruby and Rails program with some JavaScript sprinkled at the end, and that was the kind of like de facto of all programs. That's what at that time Dev Bootcamp was. Every other like program out there was Ruby Rails and then some JavaScript, right? I don't I don't think that's true today, but in 2014 it 
I would say mostly was true, right? Um, somebody's listening is going, well, I actually like yes, but like generally speaking, like true. Uh, and then in 2015, um, I started the front end program at Terrain. So then we had a Ruby on Rails program and we had a front end program. So it did like move us into this situation of um, students like like a paradox of choice where they had to like now they've never programmed anything before and they have to ch- choose if they want to become a back-end Rails engineer or a front-end React engineer. And I, even though, like, I, um, at the time, I obviously had, like, biases in the fact that, like, I ran one of them, right? I ran the front-end one and not the back-end one. So clearly, like, I could start from the, like, position of, you should do my thing, right? <laughs> you know, using ego as a starting point there. But now, as you re-ask me that question again with, like, a lot less ego in it, um, it's it's tough because, like, how do you like how do you know what you might be more interested in? For me, I started with Ruby on Rails, and the first time I wrote, like, my very first, like, jQuery function, and I, like, hit, like, a Sinatra API and put something on the page dynamically i was like i was in right uh like i was uh done i think the important part is i don't know if it matters right i think it's 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 like this paradigm i have to make the right decision i'm gonna drop out of my life for like seven months and um i better like get this choice right and like you know one of the reasons we started the front end program is because we had this rails program we kept get we kept having more and more people get jobs as javascript engineers mm-hmm. right and we're like what if we did this for realsies <laughs> um and but like and you know i think it's you know like when you start out, it's like it's starting is the most important part. Um, whether you choose Python or Ruby or like JavaScript, like I don't know how much it matters, right? Like I think the ability to learn, the ability to tackle tough things uh, and pull them apart is more important than the first language that you learn. Like I wonder how many engineers with five years of experience are still writing the first language or framework or whatever that they that they learned obviously like if you write javascript there's a chance that happens there's obviously like rails developers who got it like there is but like i would say like there's also like i don't yeah like i said i, I don't know if it matters what you start with um one of one of the pieces of advice that we've heard or given on the show previous is if you're stumped on what language to learn first, I mean, besides just trusting in a boot camp, if you're deciding to go that route, is to look at jobs, like jobs listings, yeah. and see what are what are your ideal employers advertising jobs for. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably a pretty good place to start because there's demonstrated demand. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a lot of times though you see those like job postings where it's like a bucket list of oh, well, yeah. we're looking for a React Ember Angular engineer, uh, <laughs> which is like, a great mm. deal of content to cover if you're if yeah. you're trying to prepare for an interview with that employer uh, going yeah. from zero to sixty. And I I think for a lot of these programs, like focusing on like the fundamentals is like it's it's very easy to get caught on the hype train. Right, uh, whatever the new the new hotness is, you want to hit that sweet spot. Of, it's interesting to like, and I'm sure there's like, you want to hit that sweet spot of not so new that like it's uh, niche, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it's weird because you've also got to like, because you, you, you're hitting a certain kind of company too, right? Like. Even like Rails, like they all started in Rails. Why Rails though? Like there was clearly like some kind of like sweet spot of like small to mid-sized company, right? Because I'm sure like Citibank wasn't using Rails at the time. 
certainly. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of right. training for training for where the demand will be mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways. Yep. And not so far in advance where you're going to start like doing this like new thing that you read on the Hacker News front page that morning, but like figuring out what like rising up enough so that like I think the front end stuff was super interesting because there aren't a lot of like front end engineers right it's gotten to the point where we're building these rich client side apps but like you have a lot of engineers like myself who started with ruby and rails uh, and have transitioned as the web has gone over but like i think it's one of those things where it's like it's like it grew really fast like building these like complicated client side applications out of nowhere and you have this like demand and nobody really nobody's been writing react apps for seven years yeah, right. That's, that's the irony uh-huh. that, that the Rails guy, David Hennemeyer Hansen, DHH, I think he he often airs uh, emails from recruiters advertising jobs in Ruby on Rails, and they have you know five years experience, and this was back when Rails hadn't been around for five years. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not uncommon for recruiters to get ahead of themselves with trying to to solicit people yeah. with experience that no one has. So stuff like Rails a few years ago, and I think you you you're not like if you choose to join a Rails program today, that's a safe choice because um, I still think there's a lot of demand in that area. But like yeah, the front end stuff where nobody even like just because I wrote some amount of Rails before, like I haven't been writing React all that long. Uh, nobody has right. Um, so finding like those those sweet spots and like if you're a beginner, how do you actually know that? Uh, unclear like there is an argument that if you're listening to the two of us right now you're at least an advanced beginner right and you have some some like slightly more like nuanced sense of the industry right like I think for me like a lot of it early on I think I was able to like advance really quickly uh, because I listened to a ton of podcasts and read a bunch of stuff and it's like even if I didn't know like let's say how react like I, even if I had never written a React application before, this idea that like I had heard people talk about like the virtual DOM and like diffing like gave me this like uh, ten thousand foot view into how these things work. Like it's when I knew that I was a human relational database was I didn't actually know how to write a SQL statement yet, but like I understood like the like high level stuff by just like immersing myself into people talking about this stuff even if i didn't totally understand what they were saying even if i only got like the most superficial level that superficial level gave me a um an ability to kind of like get a sense of the of the ecosystem right and understand it on that level and i think that that is um it's a great way to like to figure out like what the that next thing coming over the horizon is right like you know like it like people who built ios apps in 2008 are are probably still like uh still very glad that they did right and so like what are the things coming over the horizon now it probably like stuff like progressive web apps and like with any of these things there's a risk that you that you take a misstep right there's a um there's a risk that you you know you chose something else but jquery at the time right and it's like but none of those people it's not like career ending right then you just switch to jquery it's fine right um i don't know if the decision matters as much but i think like if if one can make the right decision of looking at like what are the new things that have grown to a certain amount 
of uh, popularity doesn't feel like the right word, but let's go with it. Um, acceptance. But like, <laughs> acceptance. I like that's very good. Um, a certain level of acceptance, but at the same time have this like dearth of like the fact that you can theoretically compete more with a senior developer because that senior developer is also learning this framework um, at the same time. That's a, that's a sweet spot if you can time that correctly, right? Like, and like some of these things, maybe they're not great first languages. Like maybe on the back end, Elixir is the answer to that right now. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying like hypothetically, uh, I have never, I have, uh, it's one of those things I like, as I get further in this industry, I will never know what it is like to be a first time programmer learning Elixir, right? I will not have, I will not like have the ability to have that experience. Um, and like, but let's say hypothetically, and I know nothing about Elixir, so don't email me. Um, uh, <laughs> But like, let's say learning Elixir as a first language is hard. Then you're still not wrong for learning Rails, which is a very like approachable framework in Ruby, a very like beginner friendly language first. But then like always, always have your eyes open for like what the next thing coming over the horizon is. I think as a first language, it's very hard to make a bad choice. Um, but like you do want to like. And even if you stick with that one, you'll be fine. But I think you can always like kind of like jump up a level real quick if you find out that thing where there is like this dearth, like where everyone everyone has like if you find one of these, I feel like they're like I would call them like great resets in our industry, right? If you can find one of these like great resets where even people with a bunch of experience coming over are still learning at the same time as you, it gives you the ability to kind of like jump in and contribute and like be the first person that writes like a library. I think a lot about like um, Node when it started out. Like, like, there's a certain need to like take a whole bunch of like HTTP HTTP request libraries from Ruby and effectively like rewrite them in Node, right? Uh, to, somebody had to write a test runner, right? So like we needed all of these things. Somebody had to write like a version of Sinatra, um, and like that'll that will be that was probably true when like Go hit like a certain level of acceptance, and that will be true again when whatever the next language hits a certain or like idea hits a certain amount of like there are certain things that we need, um, and we have to like kind of either reinvent them or like everyone becomes a beginner at that thing again, and those are great if you can kind of like slot yourself. In. And if there's not one right now, um, I would argue progressive web apps personally is my like bet right now. Um, so for people in now, our audience who aren't familiar with progressive web apps, can they just yeah. plug in progressive web apps to Google and they'll find a bunch of the resources? Or are there more specific tools around progressive web apps that people should search for or keep an eye out for? Uh, Google, I think, like, as far as, like, Google is, I think, like, on the forefront of this right now, along with Mozilla. Uh, but Google has put a lot of their, like, developer advocate time into mm -hmm. building up a whole bunch of resources on this stuff, right? They have a progressive web app summit. And the idea, like, progressive web apps are not, like, one technology. It's like a, here's a bunch of really kind of advanced web APIs for, like, controlling the cache and offline access and triggering notifications and scheduling a background sync. And the, the idea is you're able to build, like, apps that are like, we would think that you could only be able to build natively on iOS or Android with like Swift or Java or Objective-C are now like possible um, on the on the web platform, oh, right? Um, you know, and it's like, I think Google's got some of the best, um, the best resources for that right now. Uh, I also just did a front end master's course that everyone should check out with Mike North, um, but that's a, that's a self, self plug. Oh, but I think absolutely. The, but before we wrap, I I want to I want to yeah. get a chance to plug some of the really cool stuff that Steve's doing. Uh, Steve is the organizer of Dinosaur JS, a JavaScript conference in Denver uh, that happens currently every June. 
Um, but for our audience that's curious about how to stay plugged into stuff and know what technology is on the up and up, attending conferences like Dinosaur.js is a great way to do it. Another way is to check out the workshops that Steve was just re- referencing uh, online of Frontend Masters. If you Google Frontend Masters, or I'll include a link as well in the in the podcast description. Um, before we wrap, I know you're also working on a book. Do you mind plugging the book oh, real yeah. quick? Yeah, I'm working on a book, Electron in Action, um, which is Electron is, if you've ever used like Visual Studio Code or Atom or the Slack desktop app, it's the ability to build desktop applications using web technologies. So how to build Slack. <laughs> Effectively. Effectively. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, thank you. I, I hope we do this again soon. This was super informational Absolutely. and content rich. Awesome. Yeah, I'm happy to anytime you want. Thanks for joining us for our first audio-only podcast. If you enjoyed Steve's stories and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews, and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones.